Hello and welcome to Invisible Hate. I am Sadia Khan. And I'm Asal Bhatt. And our story today takes us to Howard Beach, Queens, New York, in December of 1986. 23-year-old Michael Griffith sprints through the streets of Howard Beach, running for his life. He quickly glances behind him only to find the mob of teenagers hot on his tail. With each passing second, the mob gets closer, quickly closing the gap between the boys and their victim. With his aggressors closing in and nowhere else to run, Griffith makes one final attempt at escape. Approaching the Belt Parkway, he slips through a small hole in the fence out onto the highway. Before his attackers can follow, Griffith staggers across the busy six-lane expressway, jumping the center divider. It's at that moment that a car strikes him. This is Invisible Heat. Welcome back to Invisible Heat, a weekly true crime podcast in which Asad and I attempt to uncover the ugly truths behind various hate crimes, both recent and historical. Yeah, that's right, Sadia. Many of the cases that we discuss involve crimes committed against minority groups. Our goal, as always, is to determine through a discussion of the nuances and complexities of these crimes whether or not they can be considered hate crimes. Before we begin, Sadia, how was your week? My week has been fine, Asad. I'm focusing on creating more podcasts. As yeah. you know, we recorded an episode of Nationly, which is a limited series election podcast. It will launch in June, sunset in November. We have some great co-hosts for it. So, yeah, I've been busy with that. And then I've been busy with driving my girls back and forth from college. (laughs) Every few days they'll call me and they'll be like, oh, we want to come for a weekend. And then I have to drive all the way either to Massachusetts or to Vermont to bring them home. So, yeah, I am doing it this Thursday as well. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. You should get just give them a car or give them a ticket to a bus. Yeah, you're right. I should do that. <laughs> I am just being this like weird mom who wants to spend extra time <laughs> with my kids in the car. I get it. Tell me about your week. What have you been up to? Yeah, life is good, Sadia. Our movie, Ramadan America, which uh, you're aware of, we just got told that it's going to premiere at South by Southwest in, <gasps> oh my gosh, that's in a couple so weeks. Good. Yeah, so uh, we're really excited about that. And I'm just kind of frantically putting the finishing touches on that. And anytime there's a, a first something that you do, there's a lot of things that you learn about. So this is the first kind of movie that I put together. So as you can imagine, just kind of like all the things that you didn't know that you didn't know or mm. popping up. And so just uh, a big time commitment, but I love it. I'm learning a lot. And uh, I think everybody's going to be impressed when the film comes out. Everybody will be absolutely impressed, Asad, because I've already seen it and <laughs> I loved it. Wow, thank you. Yeah. And listeners, you should check it out when it comes out. When is it releasing? Yeah, so we are still figuring that out, Sadia. We're hoping that middle of March we'll have some online premieres and in-person premieres, and then hopefully it'll be widely released after that. So still working on that plan. But yeah, excited for the premiere at South by Southwest in March. 
That's wonderful, Asit. So, should we get started? Yeah, let's get started. It's the night of December 19th, 1986. Michael Griffith, Cedric Sandiford, Timothy Grimes, and Curtis Sylvester are on their way from Brooklyn into Queens when their 1976 Buick breaks down on a deserted stretch of Cross Bay Boulevard just outside of Harvard Beach, Queens. The four had been on their way to collect Griffith's paycheck. Stranded on Cross Bay Boulevard, Griffith, Sandiford, and Grimes set out in search of a payphone to call for help, leaving Sylvester with the car. Now remember, this is 1986, so no mobiles, guys. They soon find themselves in a predominantly white Italian neighborhood of Harvard Beach. As soon as the three black men enter the neighborhood, they are met by various white residents who taunt them, yelling racial slurs and insisting that they leave the neighborhood. In one particular instance, the three are almost struck by a car in which several white teenagers ride. Oh my goodness. The boys yell racial slurs at the men and heated words are exchanged between the two groups. Despite this treatment, the men carry on in search of a payphone. They enter a pizzeria titled New York Pizza where they ask to use a phone. After being told that there is no phone available, the men decide to order pizza. It's now just past midnight, December 20th, 1986. The men are tired and hungry from their late night trek through the streets of Harvard Beach. Sometime during this period, a 17-year-old white teenager named John Lester returns to a neighborhood birthday party after encountering Griffith, Sandiford and Grimes. It is believed that he was one of the teenagers in the car that almost hit the three black men. Upon returning to the party, Lester encourages everyone to go kill the three men. The 17-year-old soon returns to Pizza Parlor accompanied by a gang of 11 other teenagers. Armed with baseball bats, tire irons and tree limbs, the teens gather outside of the pizzeria waiting for the men to leave. At around 12.40 a.m., Griffith, Sandiford and Grimes exit the pizza place. They are immediately confronted by the violent gang of teenagers. Yeah, I can imagine, Salia, that they'd be shocked, like, what's happening. Can you imagine that you're just eating in a pizza restaurant and then all of a sudden you exit and there's a mob outside with <laughs> baseball bats and tree limbs and tire? And also, who has a tree limb as a weapon that seemed very odd to me but yeah i can can only imagine how scared they were i said we've covered past cases in which similar things have occurred right yeah so it's no surprise to me that it's mostly teenagers who come together form a mob and then try to attack somebody from a minority group it's happened in the past for sure anyways Weapons in hand, the teens chase the men through the streets of Harvard Beach, shouting racial slurs. In the midst of the chase, the three men get split up. Luckily for him, Timothy Grimes successfully outruns his pursuers, escaping relatively unharmed. 
the other two are not so lucky. Oh no. Despite his best efforts to escape, the violent teens catch Cedric Sandiford and proceed to brutally beat him with baseball bats, tire irons, and tree limbs. In the midst of the beating, Sandiford exclaims, and I quote, My God, I have a son like you, 17 years old. Please don't kill me. Oh my goodness. Unquote. Sandiford suffers severe head wounds requiring a total of 66 stitches. I can't even imagine what that felt like to be hit by baseball bats and other weapons like that. Wow. You're right, Asad. But while severely injured, Sandiford will thankfully soon make a full recovery. Oh, that's amazing. That's great to hear. But of the three, Michael Griffith suffers the worst fate. The high-speed chase takes Griffith and his attackers towards the Belt Parkway, where the teenagers chase him into traffic. With nowhere else to run, Griffith climbs through a hole in the fence onto the Belt Parkway. He stumbles across the six-lane highway, climbing over the central divider before being fatally struck by a car mm. driven by court officer Dominic Plum. The collision instantly kills Griffith. His young life tragically cut short. Yeah, I mean, Sadie, what an awful, awful story. And like you said, you know, we've heard this story before of teenagers who create a mob and go after other people and the ramifications are deadly. And it's just, it's really sad that he saw no other outlet than to jump into oncoming traffic and get hit by a car. You're absolutely right, Asad. Yeah, so I imagine, sadly, that other people found this pretty shocking. You know, what was the response to it? Asad, there was an incredibly strong public reaction to this attack. The case garnered national headlines, drawing worldwide attention. Howard Beach quickly became a national symbol of racial violence, exposing racial hatred in New York City. As is to be expected, the incident sparked immediate outrage in New York City's African-American community. Mm. According to Black Past, civil rights leader Reverend Al Sharpton led a series of protests in Harwood Beach as well as the Brooklyn regions of Canarsie and Bath Bay. Here's a clip from protests. At one particular protest in Howard Beach, take a listen to what Reverend Sharpton had to say. So we will monitor these trials and make sure that the debt is paid. The debt is not an arrest. The debt is a conviction. We hope the people that were arrested will be held without bail to show the courts are serious about prosecuting these people. But to grab some people off the street. In Howard Beach, Sharpton and his fellow protesters were met by a group of counter-demonstrators who berated the group of activists while holding watermelons. Whoa. 
I believe it's symbolic of something, Asit. Yeah, so Sadia, the watermelon syrup, I'm look, just looking it up on Wikipedia now, the watermelon stereotype is an anti-black racist trope originating in the southern U.S. It first arose as a backlash to African-American emancipation and economic self-sufficiency in the late 1860s. So it's been around for a while as a, as a trope. Oh, wow, Asit. How fucked up is that? Yeah. Anyways, the counter demonstrators claimed that they were not, in fact, racist and that the attack had not been racially motivated. Okay, this to me is so messed up, Asit. On the one hand, they are holding watermelons yeah, right. in their hands <laughs> and then they are saying, well, we are not racist, by the way. Yeah, great point. Here's what one demonstrator said. But I do feel it's discrimination against the whites. How do I feel about it? I think it's a big outrage, and it shouldn't be just in Howard Beach. It's all over New York, and it's all over the nation as far as I'm concerned, okay? Not only that, we have discrimination here because they're on one side, we're on the other, and they're only here because it was a black person that beat up on a white, and we did not murder them. Nobody forced them through that fence. We did not go and put them in front of that car, okay? Also, we wanted to share a clip from a 2023 firing line interview with Reverend Al Sharpton, who talks about this incident. Take a listen. Then we called a march for that Saturday and uh, uh, 1,500 people. And they were lined up on both sides of the street yelling the N-word, get out our neighborhood. And you see in the documentary, they would say right to the camera the N-word. They had no shame. Several other civil rights leaders called for boycotts of all white-owned Howard Beach businesses. Protests continued even months after Griffith's murder. According to the Washington Post, in December of 1987, during the height of the Howard Beach trial, hundreds of demonstrators blocked Brooklyn-bound traffic on the Brooklyn Bridge. A total of 70 protesters were arrested for blocking traffic. The incident garnered a substantial political response as well, with Mayor Ed Koch comparing the attack to, and I quote, lynching parties that existed in the Deep South, unquote. What do you think of this quote, Asad, when people make references to a particular part of the United States implying that racism doesn't exist in other parts of the country? I guess I didn't read it that way or hear it that way. I think that, the yeah, the origination of kind of lynching and the proliferation of them was mostly in the Deep South. But yeah, I mean, I think it certainly was happening, you know, all over the country. I think the assumption here is that it happened more in the South. Yeah, that's a good point. Just it's clear that this attack stoked a lot of racial tensions in New York City and nationally at the time and definitely want to hear more. But before that, we're going to take a quick break. And when we return, we'll discuss the victims and the perpetrators in greater depth. Welcome back to Invisible Hate. So, Sadia, can you tell us more about the victims of this crime? Absolutely, Asad. At the time of the attack, Michael Griffith was just 23 years old. Griffith had immigrated from Trinidad to the United States with his family as a child. He had at least one brother and two sisters. At the time of his death, he worked as a construction worker. In 1999, years after the attack, 
six blocks of Pacific Street in Bedford-Stuyvesant, Brooklyn, were named after Griffith, who had lived there as a child. Mm. As for Cedric Sandiford, he was 36 years old at the time of the attack. According to the New York Times, Sandiford was born in Guyana and immigrated to the United States in 1968. He served in the U.S. Army from 1968 to 1970. He too had been working as a construction worker at the time of the attack. Also, he had been dating Michael Griffith's mother, Jean Griffith, who he later married in 1989. Now, Cedric had a total of six children including three stepchildren, two sons from a previous marriage, and one daughter who he had with Jean. According to the New York Times, after the attack, Sandiford refused to generalize and condemn the entire region of Howard Beach, saying in a 1990 interview, and I quote, I have not said one bad word about anybody in Howard Beach because I know there are good people over there. Unquote. And finally, Timothy Grimes was just 19 years old at the time of the attack. Little more is known about Grimes and his background. It's interesting to me, obviously, wide ranges of ages here. Then also two of them were immigrants to the U.S., uh, at least, and, and maybe Timothy Grimes was as well. But yeah, just uh, really interesting backgrounds on these people. And obviously so sad that a 23-year-old Michael Griffith was, you know, his life was cut short. Do you know anything else about the perpetrators involved in this attack? Yes, Asad. So it is believed that there were a total of 12 white teenagers aged 16 to 19 involved in the attack. The attack was led by 17-year-old John Lester. Born in 1969 in the United Kingdom, Lester had immigrated to the United States with his mother, stepfather, and siblings at the age of 14. So Lester was also an immigrant. Wow, very interesting. Okay, yeah. He started at John Adams High School in Queens in 1984. According to Caribbean Life News, the teen was an admirer of the mafia and aspired to follow in his father's footsteps in law enforcement. Now, this is confusing to me, Asit. He admires mafia, but also wants to be in, yeah, law, in enforcement. law enforcement. Yeah, that's really interesting to me as well. Uh, I, it doesn't seem to jive very well. Maybe he was confused, Asit. <laughs> Ultimately, he never became a police officer. So, Sadia, tell us about the investigation into Griffith's murder then. Shortly after Griffith was struck by the car, police arrived on the scene to investigate. They soon spotted Sandiford walking west along the parkway, bloodied and dazed. The officers immediately identified Sandiford as a prime suspect in the case. I'm not surprised, Asad. Yeah, it's not surprising, but yeah, that's interesting, yeah. According to Black Past, they brought him back to see Griffith's lifeless body on the parkway before placing him in a squad car. Wow. Oh, my goodness. Despite his severe wounds, the police denied Sandiford medical attention, forcing him to recount his version of the incident several times over until morning. Wow. And he was the one that got beat or had 66 stitches, right? Is that right? Exactly. Oh, my goodness unbelievable that i say unbelievable obviously we've done this enough that it is believable right that the cops would react this way to people you know that they found that are african-american but i can't imagine just being 
brutally beaten and having just discovered the loss of your girlfriend's son only to then be accused of murder and then also denied medical attention. I mean, he must have been crazy, bloodied and cuts and all sorts of stuff. So it's just really absolutely absurd. Of course, it's ridiculous. According to the History Channel, as a result of such behavior, both Sandiford and Grimes were understandably distrustful of Queen's police and refused to cooperate further with both investigators and the district attorney's office. I'm not surprised, Asad. I would yeah. do the same thing. Sure. Thankfully, ultimately, through a series of investigations, the police were able to successfully identify the 12 white teenagers involved in the attack. Wow, that's impressive that they were able to do that. What happened at the trial? So basically, Asad... Claiming that the Queen's District Attorney's Office was mishandling the case, Reverend Sharpton and several other black civil rights leaders called for the appointment of a special state prosecutor. Governor Mario Cuomo granted this request, naming Charles Haynes as the special prosecutor to investigate the case. Jury selection was another important aspect of the trial, According to the Washington Post, Haynes was able to successfully challenge the defense practice of excluding black individuals from the jury without reason. Wow. It shows us that this was happening, right? This was a common practice. Exactly. Yeah, for sure. According to the New York Times, this was an important precedent-setting decision. As a result, one black juror was seated along with six white jurors two Hispanic jurors, two Asian-American jurors, and an Indian juror from Guyana. Seems pretty representative to me, so yeah. Yeah, it does. You're right. The trial lasted a total of three months, including 12 intense days of deliberation that finally ended on December 21st, 1987. 12 days, I said, that's a long time, right? Yeah, for sure. Throughout the course of the trial, defense lawyers called a total of 13 witnesses to stand while the prosecution called a total of 61 witnesses. Amongst those brought to the stand by the prosecution were both Timothy Grimes and Cedric Sandiford. Both men played a large role in the trial. However, under hostile questioning by the defense, Crimes struggled to maintain his composure on the stand. Mm. According to the Washington Post, he ran from the stand two times throughout the questioning, yelling, and I quote, finished, I am finished with this. The defense centered much of their approach around tainting the characters and credibility of Griffith, Sandiford, and Grimes. Oh my goodness, yeah, we've seen this play out before, yep. We have, Asad, time and again. They emphasized Griffith's history of cocaine abuse, Sandiford's prior gun charge convictions, and Grimes' history of assault and burglary charges. The defense clearly sought to portray the three victims as three antagonistic men spoiling for a fight. Unquote. In doing so, defense lawyers not only argued that the white teenage boys had felt threatened by the men, but also suggested that perhaps their accounts could not be trusted. Mm. Special Prosecutor Haynes merely called this a smokescreen. 
There was one crucial witness, by the way, Asad, who served to strengthen the prosecution's case. Robert D. Riley, another one of the teenagers charged in the attack, agreed to testify against his friends in exchange for the prosecution's support for his application to the court for youthful offender treatment. Hmm. Riley's account was rather damning for several of the teens involved in the attack. Ultimately, 17-year-old John Lester, 17-year-old Jason Ladon, and 19-year-old Scott Kern were convicted of manslaughter in the death of Griffith. As the two of them are under 18. Yeah, so young. And, you know, I wonder if they would have been convicted without the testimony of Riley, you know, having someone to flip and essentially, you know, from the inside sounds very mafia like uh, right. as well, you know. Yeah. So sad again, like they're so young, um, 17, 17 and, and 19 to be convicted in, in this death and so much future ahead of them doing such a senseless act is is, is saddening. Yeah, Asad, but isn't it sad that the police had two victims slash eyewitnesses and yet that wasn't enough? Yeah, agreed. Agreed. I mean, you know, I think I don't know if we'll know if it wasn't enough, but, you know, it, certainly the prosecutors felt like they needed to get, you know, Riley to turn on the three of them in order to have a slam dunk case. Um, so, yeah. You're right. And as John Lester had admitted to beating Sandiford with a bat, he was further convicted of first-degree assault. Lester was sentenced to 10 to 30 years in prison, mm. with Ladon receiving a sentence of 5 to 15 years and Kern receiving a sentence of 6 to 18 years. I said, I'm confused. When they give these ranges, how does it really work then? You know, I would imagine that part of it is based on good behavior and, you know, whether they do other things while they're in prison, you know, maybe like getting a GED or college education or volunteering can reduce their crimes. But yeah, I think it's saying that a minimum of 10 and then, you know, potential with parole, you know, you can get out at 10 or, you know, but a maximum of 30. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. The other teenagers involved in the attack received far lighter sentences and in most cases merely received community service. Mm. With that Asad, let's get to our primary question of the episode. Should the Harwood Beach attack and murder be considered a hate crime? Yeah, Sally, I think for me it's pretty clear that yeah, it should have been considered a hate crime and racially motivated. I think if we go back to the kind of question that we always say, you know, would this have happened if it was just three white kids that came and were at the pizza shop? I don't see that happening. I think that, you know, they were targeted because of the color of their skin. What do you think? You're absolutely right, Asit. Not just that, the minute they entered the neighborhood, they faced animosity from everybody. There yeah. were slew of racial slurs and offenses as well as insistence that they leave the neighborhood. So they had not even done anything, not interacted with anybody and yet they were targeted because of their physical appearance. And then the attack started from John Lester's racist proclamation that let's just go kill them. Mm-hmm. Using the N-word. Yeah, for sure. Totally. Using the N-word. That's where it all started. Yeah. So the boys had no personal connection to these three men and therefore 
no reason to have a problem with them. Now, some people have argued that this was merely a turf war and therefore had nothing to do with race. But I don't buy that. Asad. I don't think that's true at all. Yeah, I think I'm with you as well, especially as as this case was presented. You know, I think it's clear to me that if the three of them were just regular white guys that were there, this wouldn't have happened. Yeah, so I think sadly we're both in agreement that this should have been classified and tried as a hate crime. Where are the perpetrators and the victims and family members today? Asad Jason Ladon was released from prison in 2000, after which he began working for New York City's Transportation Department. Soon after, Scott Gunn was released in 2002. He soon married and had a child. John Lester was released from prison in 2001, after which he was deported back to the United Kingdom. So I assume he was not a citizen, right? Right, yeah. Otherwise, he would not have been deported. Correct, yeah. While in prison, Lester had earned an associate business degree, studied and counseled other prisoners on anger management, mm. recovered from Crohn's disease, taught himself guitar, and composed an ode to Griffith's mother, Jean. Hmm. For me, in particular, you know, where we talk about prison as a form of rehabilitation and seems like Lester rehabilitated himself and, you know, is trying to make good with society and with the family. And so that's exactly what we want to ask for from the prison system. Yeah, Asad, but I don't see prison as a place where people are rehabilitated. This may have been an exception, but sometimes they become hardened criminals. Sure, sure. But I think in this case, whether it was because of prison or not, during this time, he was able to better himself and, you know, it seems like apologize. You're right. After returning to England, he also earned a degree in engineering and started his own electrical company. Hmm. He then moved in with a woman whom he had three children with. But unfortunately, Asad, Lester committed suicide in 2017 at the age of 48. Oh my goodness. According to a New York Times interview with his sister Jane, Lester had suffered from depression, haunted by guilt dreams and forced to remain in the UK away from his family. As for the other surviving victims of 1986 attack, unfortunately, Asad, their stories aren't much better. In 1988, Timothy Grimes was arrested for shooting his brother in Virginia. He received a long prison sentence, extended further after Grimes committed another crime in prison. Hmm. And it's unclear where he is today. As for Cedric Sandiford, he went on to marry Michael Griffith's mother, Jean, in 1989. However, in 1991, Sandiford passed away from AIDS. Wow, sad. According to Caribbean Life News, Jean Griffith Sandiford continues to return to the gravesite where her son is buried regularly, mourning his loss and celebrating his memory. Having lost both her son and her husband, Griffith Sandiford has certainly faced significant adversity and loss. As we can see, Asa, this is such a sad ending. Yeah, I think lots of sad stories in here and just like, yeah. We can only hope that she goes on to live a happy and healthy life. For sure. So I guess, Adi, what can listeners do to help? So I said, here are a few things that listeners can do. Now, according to the New York Times, following the deaths of both Griffith and Sandiford, Michael Griffith's brother, 
Christopher began the Griffith Sandiford Family Assistance Fund. The fund had two primary goals to provide assistance and aid to victims of hate crimes as well as those with AIDS. However, unfortunately, it doesn't appear that this fund is in existence anymore. As a result, there is no direct way to help support the victims and family members of this 1986 racial attack. However, as we always tell our listeners, they can aid in the overall fight against these types of crimes and discriminatory actions by taking part in or supporting the Black Lives Matter movement, as well as getting involved in or donating to non-profit organizations such as the National Action Network, the Grassroots Law Project, Color of Change, and many other that seek to protect and advance the rights of Black individuals across the nation. With that, Asad, we are going to wrap up this episode, but would love to hear what our listeners think. So first, thank you so much for listening to Invisible Hate. Thank you for coming back every week, I hope, to listen to these important stories. If you want to learn more, check out links in the show notes about the case. Please email us your thoughts on this story or any other story that you think we should cover. You can reach us at info at invisiblehatepodcast.com. You can also tweet us or hit us up on Instagram. Just search for Invisible Hate Podcast. Yeah, thanks again for listening. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. Invisible Hate is a joint production of Rafaelion Media and Immigrant Lee. We'd like to thank our team, which includes Michaela Strather, Emmanuel Monahan, and Paroma Chakravarthy. Our music was done by Simon Hutchinson. And as always, we'll be back next week with another hate crime for us to analyze. Until then, I'm Asad Butt. And I'm Sandhya Khan. 